0: Oh, it's wonderful to see you. What do you think of that new logo? Like that? It's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, we just uh, we're just excited to to just be a part of this church. You you may not know this because it didn't really impact this service, but we added an eight a.m. service uh, today. was the first uh, one of those, and uh, and the reason why we had to do that is because we just had too many people showing up for the amount of chairs we had uh, last weekend. We had to add rando chairs everywhere just to get people to, you know, just stuffed in this room. So, so hopefully, um, that will be, uh, creates more space. Let's fill up every service though, and then we'll go from there because maybe we'll, maybe we'll go to four. Uh, I don't want to do that, but maybe we'll go to four. Uh, but hey, that's a great problem to have. I'd like to ask you to go ahead, if you would please, and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. My job today is to lead our study in verses 25 through 32 as we continue our summer teaching series, Paul's New Testament letter to this wonderful church in this ancient town called Ephesus. If you've been tracking with us uh, throughout the summer, you may recall that the Apostle Paul's objective in the later chapters of this book, four, five, and six, um, are all about giving Christians the practical wisdom commands and motivation and encouragement they need to follow Jesus. It's just very practical. Call it Christianity Applied. Okay, practical Christianity. And if you take your message notes out, you'll see a list that we've been building in this second half of the series, Practical Steps in Following Jesus. Those first two are those are the main ideas of the sermons that went previous to today. For for now, though, the passage is gonna look like this. We're gonna live a lifestyle, Paul says, a lifestyle where our words, our work, and our emotions are Jesus-centered. So that's what we're gonna cover today. Those are your first fill-ins if you're taking notes. If you're not filling in things, just pretend like you are. You know, just fit in. You know, just go like this. Air, air things. Uh, either way, uh, this is going to cover daily life. Um, really, what we're talking about here is a lifestyle. Christianity isn't necessarily a religion as it as it is a comprehensive manner of living. Now I know it's a religion in the categories of, you know, what we're talking about here, but this is this is like this is who we are. This is how we live our lives as Jesus flows in and through us. So let's read the passage now and you'll get a feel for this, how much ground that Paul covers. So verse 25 is where we're going to start. Okay. What does it say? Therefore, thank you. be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, so this is God's word and in this little paragraph I kind of get blown away at how much ground is covered. How many subjects and topics that we have here and it's big stuff like major life issues. It's not just little side things. Yeah. It's it's just like Bam. Okay. It hits you and then it gets to another passage and another issue, right? And I want to, I want to, before we dive into these, I want to connect one dot. If you, if you don't mind, if you were with us last week, a dot from last week's message, I'm going to put the end of our text from last week is verses 22, 23, and 24 on the screen. Paul says, put off your old self. You remember who was here last week? Put off your old self. Right, which belongs to your former manner of life, your old life, and then he says, "Put on what does he say? Put on the new self created in the the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." So we talked about this last week that Paul's giving us kind of a metaphor of putting off an old cloak or taking off a garment and laying it aside. That's your old life, and then putting on the new self, the new identity in Jesus. And this is really this radical transformation, this radical life change when Christ comes to live in your hearts, when you become a Christian follower. Uh, and, And so what today is, to connect the dot, today is a series of examples of putting off the old and putting on the new, just taking different topics and applying that. So this is the formula for today is there's roughly this five times. It's a putting off something and then putting on something new and then the the result of that. There's a little result that gets snuck in there and that's the formula we're gonna follow. Okay, does that sound good? All right, so let's dive into this first one. Paul says first, verse 25, look at this with me. Put off falsehood. Put away falsehood or put off falsehood. That's the same phrase as as in before last week, put off, put on. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So if Paul is laying out a lifestyle here, the first place he starts is with truth and trustworthiness. This is a good place to start. Actually, he's quoting the, uh, the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah here, almost directly. So it's putting off falsehood. And then it says, putting on truth-telling. So there's, this is interesting. So there's two sides to this. And it seems maybe redundant on the start, on the surface, to put off falsehood and lying and things, but then put, put on speaking the truth. It's not redundant. And the reason it's not redundant is because there's a lot of workarounds, technically, you cannot say a lie and still live in the spirit of falsehood. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of workarounds here. Have you ever said this? Well, technically, I didn't lie. I didn't actually say a lie. So to be a person of integrity and honesty, you can't just put away falsehood, put off. You have to put on truth. Like like the workarounds, there's so many. Here's one, misdirection. Have you ever known someone that does this misdirection, which is they basically like switch track the topic rather than, you know, focus on the core issue and, you know, dig in there. They'll just, oh, well, and they'll bring up a side thing or a red herring, we call it. It's misdirection. This is a common thing. Magicians do this a lot. They want to deceive. It's a form of deception. And so like, if you ever go to like a, big city uh, there's people that do the shell game you know on the side of the sidewalk or whatever and it's all predicated on this idea of of throwing you off and so people do this it's a way of falsehood without technically lying another one is is misleading uh, misleading something you know you're saying misleading statements uh, a, a way to do that is exaggerate you can exaggerate something it's not technically a lie but maybe it's just kind of uh, blowing things up we we get sometimes we get pastors do we get emails from people who complain, I know this is not in this service, though. Okay, this eleven o'clock does not have these. And what I hear so much is, you know, hey, pastor, uh, I don't like, you know, what you what you're doing. I want you to do this instead. And then, and then, this is, and everyone agrees with me. Everyone agrees with me. And it's an exaggeration, yeah. Has, it, has that ever happened at your work? And then when I hear that, I'm just like, did, did everyone, did you take a survey? Can I, see the, can I see the notes? Can I see the result of the survey that everybody agrees that we should sing this particular song that you love from 1982 by Rich Mullins or whatever it is that they would like to <laughs> I love Rich Mullins, by the way. It's not what this is what was about. It's an exaggeration. Or there's another one of being purposely ambiguous or, or not straightforward. Like, don't you hate it when someone like gets asked a question and then they don't answer the question? They they don't even answer the question. They answer a different question. And then you're just like, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't answer the question. You didn't answer the question. That's not the question that was... I, I, can't, I can't watch news TV because you know when the journalist, whatever channel you watch, everybody does this. They'll ask the person, the guest, and then the person doesn't answer the question. And then there's me, the engineer. I'm just going nuts. I'm me all at the TV. You didn't answer the question, bro. You just got to answer the question. Why doesn't the journalist re-ask it in the same way and say, but you did it. And they never do that. And I have to just go... I have to go be my, by myself. Um, is, that, is that just me? <laughs> okay, so there's another one, um, and that's when you know the truth, and then you don't speak up, and you just you're just quiet, and just let things play out. And she's like, "Oh, that's 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 kind of in the spirit of falsehood." Well, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved. Uh, And that's that's the thing. So there's all kinds of ways to get wrapped up and put in this thing called falsehood, which of course includes telling outright lies, but the way that you truly put off falsehood is you have to put on truth and truth-telling, a lifestyle of honesty and integrity. And that means that you speak the the truth with your words and your actions and your tones and that you don't manipulate, you don't mislead, you don't misdirect, you don't use false flattery to try to get your way and manipulate, that you're as as accurate as possible Possible with your words that you follow through with what you say that you'll do. Putting on truth means being careful about making commitments and it means being careful about doing what you commit to do. Putting on truth, being a person of truth, knows the difference between an opinion and preference and factual reality. And this is something I wish the American church knew during COVID. A person of truth doesn't whack people in the face with truth and use truth as a weapon, as psychological warfare. Have you ever known someone who's like a debater and maybe they kind of one-up the person they're debating and because they kind of maybe have more facts and they use those facts as like a sword to chop away and you're like, that's not how the truth biblically is meant to be used because the scriptures say, actually Paul says earlier in Ephesians that we speak the truth in love. So a person of truth will sometimes wait until the right season or the right moment to bring the truth into the light and speak it gently and lovingly. Just because you know the truth about something doesn't mean that you should say the thing at the time that you realize it's the truth. It may be time to wait until the person may be ready to hear the truth. Does anybody know what I'm saying? And all the husbands nodded your heads. Yes, yes, yes. That's Billy, amen. The truth is not a weapon. The truth is a blessing. So Pastor Tim Keller says, one of my favorite pastors, he says, a person, look at this. This is excellent. A person of truthfulness is, quote, someone whose heart is a clear lake that you can see all the way to the bottom of. We need men and women who embrace the truth, who live lifestyles of the truth. We need men and women whose hearts are clear lakes, that we can see to the bottom of because our world has become increasingly addicted to falsehoods, and, and and this is such a tragedy. It's like, what is true anymore? What is true? And there's agenda and there's bias and it's cloudy and murky, and it can be impossible to discover and to to, to, to discern what it is, the, the the way things really are, which is what truth is. And this is yet not the way of Jesus followers. You and I are infused with Christ. And and Jesus describes himself in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not necessarily just a set of facts. Truth is a person. Truth is God. And it's Jesus, and so if Jesus lives in us and in our hearts, and, and he is He is making us into people like himself, then of course we are going to follow suit. It's a process, yes, but our very core identity as Christians is to be people of truth. And Paul says the result is really interesting. Notice that he says, for we are members of one another. This is family language. He's talking about a church community now, and the relationship that we have with each other is predicated and built on and foundationed on this thing called truthfulness. Of course, Jesus is at the center of this. But if you think about this and extrapolate this to all relationships, every healthy relationship is predicated on being honest and and, and and integrity. Integrity is a word that is based on a math term called integer. An integer is a whole number, meaning there's no fraction. There's no part of thing. It's your, your whole person. It's who you are. It's the clear lake heart person, who you are straight to the bottom. Integrity, any relationship that breaks down. Usually there's some sort of falsehood or, or or lack of integrity there, isn't there? Like marriages that break apart. At some point, the poison of falsehood has, has leaked in there and done damage to that relationship. And so Paul is saying, for our relationships to be healthy and work in a church community, we have to love the truth and live in the truth. And we have to encourage one another in the truth because we are members of one another. We're family members. Look around. This is your family. This is your fam, the 11 o'clock fam, right here. And so this is, this is, you could say it this way, that Redeemer's fellowship is a truth in love community. This is who we are, who we're becoming. Jesus is helping us put off the old and put on the new. He doesn't stop there. Paul goes on to another topic. In verse 26 and 27, Paul says, put off uncontrolled anger. That's your next fill-in. Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Maybe you've heard this before. Have you heard this, this whole thing? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I think Christy and I, my wife, we heard this taught at a marriage retreat once, a Christian marriage retreat. And it was really good advice. Uh, but the, the, the teacher was teaching it more literally, like, like husbands and wives, don't ever go to sleep still fighting. And so, I mean, that's not necessarily bad, but sometimes, though, let me just say, you, you should go to sleep. Okay, you're in the flesh, you're tired. A good night's sleep will actually help you resolve the conflict the next morning. You know, uh, fight again tomorrow. And you know, there's always tomorrow, right? No, I'm just saying. <laughs> that's not, I was being sarcastic. Um uh so so really the spirit of this now now I I think this is this is you can take this literal but you can also back away and the bigger principle is this is 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 that you deal with your anger. You just deal with it. You don't suppress it, you don't stuff it. So Paul is quoting and interacting with Psalm 44. I'm going to show that in a minute, but what that that says in this passage says it's very interesting. This theology of anger here is that anger is not a sin. Being angry is this, be angry and do not sin. So anger itself is not sinful. So many people think that the act of feeling angry feelings is sinful and unchristlike. And that's not biblical. In fact, Jesus was angry on more than one occasion. If we survey the Gospels, uh, it tells us he was indignant, he was angered. In Mark three, there's one of these. He goes to do a healing, and uh, and it's on the Sabbath. And some of the Pharisees come in and give him a hard time, and they start they start like like harassing him that he can't heal this dude with a, with a busted hand on the Sabbath. And it says that Christ looked at the Pharisees and he became indignant. He was angry. And, and so he heals the guy anyway out of his anger. And it's, it's this idea that that anger happens with God when the Lord sees things that are jacked up, when he sees evil. And then the Lord gets aroused in his anger at the injustice the difference between God and us is that God is not controlled by his anger. He doesn't do damage in his anger. He doesn't hurt people unjustly in his anger. He's perfectly controlled in his anger. But the idea that God is angry is, is this a big biblical thing, that God is a God of wrath. Now, wrath is, is perfect love's response to sin. And that's why you can have these things of God as a God of love and God is a God of wrath, because that works. So God's perfect love is roused by evil and sin, which is what we see Jesus in the Gospels. But here's the thing, is that we share this aspect of God's personality as image bearers, friends. So the reason that there is the capacity to be angry inside of us is because we're made in God's image. So what Paul is addressing is not that, it's, he's addressing how we misuse our anger And how we go off on people and we get torqued off and then we damage others in our anger. And we damage ourselves in our anger. So Paul says, put that uncontrolled anger off and then don't stuff your anger, deal with your anger actively seek to process your anger in non-destructive ways. Let me put Psalm 4-4 up on the screen because it actually says something interesting. It says, be angry and do not sin. So Paul's quoting this. This is, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. That just means like uh, the psalmist's way of saying like an amen or like the, 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 the song lyric is done. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds why you're angry, and then in the in the Hebrew that word "be silent" means shut up, just shut up, shut your your flapping anger machine, your mouth, boy isn't that nice now if be quiet so so here it is so so go be by yourself, just get some space. why are you angry what's Triggering you, understand that, be quiet and listen. And this is, imagine if we all literally did this, what life would be like? What would my life be like? What would my kids' lives be like, right? This would be like an amazing world. And so here's a practical, let's just, let's just live this out. This week, the next time you get angry, politely excuse yourself, and maybe that's hard to do. Maybe you're at work and you're just like in a meeting or whatever. Figure out, way, figure out a way. Figure out a way to politely excuse yourself. Just just get by yourself for just a moment and have some space. Pray, ask the Lord to help you understand why these emotions are surging through these anger. Anger is like this little, it's like, oh, you have this energy inside. And it's like, what do I do with this? And ask the Lord, okay, to help you process this. And so to do this is putting on emotional health. So you're putting off uncontrolled anger and putting on biblically-powered, spirit-powered emotional health. And this is all about, the scriptures teach us, not letting the emotions that surge through us control us, rather the Holy Spirit is who controls us, our words, our actions, our destinies, not our anger, not our emotions. It's him. Now, the result is when we do this, it's there in your, your notes. What does Paul say? He says, and then something about the devil. What does it say? It says um, that that uh, where is it? That, That give no there it is. Give no opportunity to the devil. So so this is saying that Paul is saying that that man the devil the amount of 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 evil and pain and destruction that comes through uncontrolled anger is quite significant. It's a doorway of evil in our lives. And when you put on controlled emotional health, biblically powered, right, it shuts that door of all kinds of evil in your life. There's other doorways of evil in our lives, but imagine if one of those doors is just shut. That channel is shut off, and you don't have that anymore. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. How are we doing so far? Status check, okay? Because we're going to keep going. You want to know in the next one? Paul says this, put off stealing... And put on, get a job. (laughs) Put off stealing and put on, get a job, bro. That's what he's. That's put on useful work is another way to say this. So, so let's go back to first century Ephesus. Remember this church? It's it's a big church. There's a lot of people, new Christians coming in who never have known Jesus, never raised in a Christian home. Many of the Christians are from the sort of the Roman side. They're not necessarily Jewish. There is some Jewish folks in the church, but the bigger part of the church are Roman folks. And most of the Romans are from the lower, lower tiers of society. This is what we know from most New Testament churches. Most of the churches were Roman and they were bond servants and slaves. And from people at the bottom, they found Jesus and they came to church. And this meant that Stealing was a part of everyday life. Most folks at the bottom, especially if you worked in, let's say a bond servant in a home, how you survived was you stole as much as you could get away with and then you sold that or traded that. And so this was just part of culture. We have lots of of graffiti on walls in these ancient cities that tell us how life was like. And this is one of the things that we see in the graffiti that's etched in the walls from 2,000 years ago. And so Paul is saying that even though the servants in the church who worked for wealthy homes may have made a habit of stealing from the households they served in, that's your old life. No longer steal. And in some cases, that's what they did for a living. They were pickpockets. They just stole. That's how they they didn't have actually a job job. So Paul says, that's your old life. Put that away and instead put on useful work honest work, honest labor. And this is the way of Christians. And this is actually sneaking in some theology about work too. A brief theology, the value of work, the purpose of work, the way in which work is the perspective of a Christian towards work. Many times Christians, because they know their Bible say, well, work is cursed. This is in Genesis chapter three. When remember Adam and Eve, they eat the apple or whatever it was, and then the God curses, they, He hands out punishment, and the, the fall of, of, of society comes, the fall of man comes. And, and God says, "Your work to Adam, your work will be cursed." And so people think that their work is a curse. That's how they approach their jobs. And that may be true. Work may be under a curse, but friends, it is not a curse because work was given to Adam before the fall happened. It was pre-fall. So work in and it of itself is actually good. Turn to your neighbor and say, work is good. Now your work may not be good or your job may not be good, but work is good. God said, Adam, before, before anything, Adam, here's the, here's the garden. Now go work it, tend it. So Adam got a job and then he got a wife in that order and then the fall happened and so work is good and then it says it says work matches your gifts it says again just sneaks it in here he says that work with your own hands meaning your own passions your own gifts find work that reflects how god how god created you now one of the best parts of america that you don't necessarily hear about too much but i'm going to just I'm going to just say this is my opinion. One of the best parts of America today is that anybody can pursue their gifts and their talents and their passions and their dreams and they can fulfill their dreams through this thing called work. We still have a country where this this is possible and this happens every day. You just don't hear about it too much because it doesn't, you know, doesn't fit a lot of agenda, but it's true. My dad was an immigrant. My dad and my grandparents emigrated from uh Central Europe. In the 1950s, I'm first-gen U.S. citizen, and and the reason why my grandparents and my family came here is because they couldn't find the work they wanted in Switzerland post World War II. My grandfather Alfred wanted a dairy farm, and you just can't have big dairies; you can't really do that as much, at least back then. And so he he said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna move my family to America." My grandfather Alfred he had multiple jobs. They had a little tiny a little they had like five acres. They had a little creek that ran through, and and. And right in front of their house. I've been there. It's amazing. And, and so, and so, and he had a job. He was working for the Swiss government to put in a U, uh, 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 an air force strip right by their house. So she was, was like, no, no, no. My calling is to be a dairy. I want to make milk. I want to milk cows. And so where do you go? Do you do that? You go to America because with hard work and with sacrifice, and, and you just, and with the help of your community, you can still fulfill your dreams through this thing called work. And that's, that's my family. And they bought land right out, right outside of McMinnville city limits. In fact, the land they bought eventually became, they sold it off. It became the land where, where the big, uh, air museum is. Where, what's that? The, the spruce goose was shipped up there. And that's where my family's dairy farm was. It was right there. And now it's a museum. And I don't know what to make of that, but it's there. <laughs> So the Bible is pro-work. The Bible is pro-work, not for salvation, but for job. The Bible is also pro-rest. God wants you rested properly as well. I love the Bible. When we work, we don't have to steal, and this is good. So this is a thing. Now, the scriptures do talk about stealing in another way, in, 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 in other parts of the Bible. Stealing, a form of stealing, is living a very selfish life, a me, me, me life. Where I'm just getting, 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 taking, taking, taking. Not honoring God with my money and not caring for the poor. So it is possible, friends, to have a job and never steal from your employer or from anyone. Never take a penny but still be a thief. Not sharing is stealing, so the, this is, this, the bigger thing here is, you notice that I, like your old life is you used to take, used to take, used to take. Now you gotta give. That's, Christians don't take, they give. Christians show up and when they leave, that thing is better than when they got there. That's our life. You give more than you took. And that's the power of Jesus in us. And so we take care of each other. We take care of the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. The alien, the Bible says, that's the immigrant. And the result of this, when a, a whole community gets this, is generosity is unleashed and that we care for one another's needs. People find Christ through the generosity of the church. And it's, it's incredible. You meet someone's physical need and all of a sudden they're spiritually open. And through the, through the meeting of people's needs, we can preach the gospel and folks come to know Jesus. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible, it's an incredible truth and a way in which churches operate. And this is how we operate. We're gonna explore this topic more. We're gonna do a deep dive later on in the fall on this. So for now, I'm just gonna leave it there. What else do we have? I gotta keep going. We have verse 29. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. It's a different topic now. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So this is, what do we put off? We put off trash talk. This is putting off trash talk, all kinds of trash talk, and we put on a controlled tongue. So this corrupting talk phrase that you see in your Bible is, is a sort of a, a broad term. It's not just about swearing. So maybe you've heard it say, like, stop cussing, like Christians don't cuss, Christians don't say these bad words because this is a passage, and it's true. This does include this, and by all means, let's stop saying foul things. But it's bigger than that. Trash talk can mean gossip. Trash talk can mean slander. It can mean lies. It can mean destructive sarcasm. It can mean filthy jokes or sexualized humor or innuendo. All these types of things, yeah? So trash talk is, is just kind of normal in culture. And so Paul says he's, he's, he's pushing into our verbal communication He's saying your words have power. Your words can tear down or your words can build up. So by all means, stop, put away the trash talk and put on speech and communication that builds up a controlled tongue. Think before you talk. Think before you post to socials. That's another way we communicate. Is this building up or is this tearing down? Is this helpful or is this just getting something off my chest? Is this wholesome or is this virtue signaling? Virtue signaling is, is a phrase now. It means letting people know how wonderful I am. I'm going to tell you how great I am. I'm virtue signaling. Have you ever seen this on social media? It's really annoying. Let's stop doing this. Let somebody else tell others how great you are. Just don't tell your, others how great you are. Oh, did that come off wrong? Are you okay with that? Okay. As a result of this, People are built up and then it's grace is given. Grace is given through words. Did you see? This is amazing. Grace is is handed out through our communication. Oh, this is beautiful. Something we need to live out. And then finally, we're to put off grieving God and put on kindness. So grieving God, look at this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It says in verse 30, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he says, let all all bitterness, this is another emotion, and wrath and anger, that's that uncontrolled thing we already covered. And clamor is like, I don't know, clamor is just like noise and obnoxiousness. And slander, of course, is a form of trash talk. Put that away from you. That's the put off part, along with all malice. Malice is like troublemakers, Beating trouble, stirring the pot stirrers. Just try, do, you know, do you know anybody that's like a troublemaker? It's like everywhere they go, they're just like stirring up trouble somehow. It's like everything was cool until you got here, and now everybody's fighting. What is wrong with this? So Paul's like, put all that away, because that grieves God. We, we can grieve God. God loves us, but we can grieve Him. Grieving is just like what you think it is. It's just you're giving God grief. Think about a relationship in your life where the person gives you grief. And you're just like, oh, I can't with you right now, bro. I mean, I love you, man, but like, what is wrong? You know, like that kind of, the grief thing. That's, the, that's how we can do that to the Lord. He's just like, oh, man, I love Billy, but boy, he is on my nerve right now. I mean, what is he doing there, Right? Paul's like, don't don't treat God that way. And and when you do these things, usually when you're hurt or you're tired or you're exhausted or you're walking in the flesh or you're upset, you're burned out. But Paul says instead, put on kindness. Put on kindness and a tender heart. And then the result is this radical forgiveness that flows out of your life in the community into one another Forgive, it says, as Christ forgave you. So can I ask you, did Jesus forgive you because you deserve forgiveness? Did Jesus forgive you because you did a really good job of explaining why you did what you did? <laughs> did Jesus forgive you because you groveled enough? No, that's not how the forgiveness of Jesus works. And so his model of forgiveness that we receive is the same model that we give to others. That's how we forgive others. Forgive others as Jesus forgave you. So hard to do. So hard to do. And by the way, all of this is pretty hard to do, wouldn't you say? Control your tongue? Control your emotions? Oh my goodness. Show me a person that control his tongue. One of the apostles writes, James, it's like a dead walking miracle. Someone who controls his tongue. James is like, it's like, it's like, It's never gonna happen under your own strength. Just that, let alone your emotions, your words, your attitude towards your job, all these things. It's overwhelming. There's so much here. It literally touches on every part of your life. It's a sweeping pass over our life. And what can happen with scriptures like this is that we can read them and we can contemplate them and we can actually go deep into them and we can be like super condemned by it. We can be like, oh my goodness, I read this passage today and I don't even know what is wrong with me. I'm the worst. And you start to just feel condemned and you start to beat yourself up. And I mean, I was was there this week, I'm studying this and I'm like, Lord, am I even a Christian? Oh my goodness, I have to preach this. And the Lord's just like, shut up, boy. Listen to me. Thank God you don't have to do this in your own strength because it's Jesus inside of me and you and Him living it out. It's infused living. It's not discipline. It's not having better morals. If if the Bible, the New Testament, just wanted to give us a list of morals and ethics and then move on, that's how every religion is. We can get that anywhere. You can get that at the atheist club. That's not what Christianity offers. Christianity offers a way to actually live this out by the power of Christ in you. And it's actually in your identity. It's actually who you really are as Christ fuses his his personality and his words and his actions with yours. And pretty soon before you know it, after 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you actually start walking with Jesus. You actually start to look like a mature Christian. And that is the vision for the Christian life. And that is why this thing is not just a religion. It's a lifestyle. But given that, I want, you to, I want you to do this. This Would you do this? Look at your, the last part of your handout. There's a simple question, and that is this. Which of the actions described in this passage today do you need to give attention to the most? Just pick one. Don't, don't get beat up over this. Pick one. Pray through it. Is there one, even as I spoke today and went through this list, there's five things here. You're just like, oh yeah, yeah, that's something that I feel like the Lord's putting his finger on. Focus on that this week. Put this before the Lord. Talk about this with your spouse, with your community group, and pray on this. Ask for God's grace in that one area. And that's a good way you can take a next step from today's teaching. How does that sound? Does that sound life-giving? Does it sound doable? Can I just pray for us? Can I pray for us as we, as we close out the sermon time? Please bow your heads with me. So Lord, I thank you so much for your word that your word is not meant to bring condemnation to us and guilt in a way that's unhealthy but it's a way to encourage inspire us forward. So specifically Lord there's a lot to pray for but I want to pray for specifically the uncontrolled anger part of today. I'm praying Lord for those amongst us listening to this that feel like they're they're just ready to explode. Maybe it's road rage, maybe it's just easily annoyed, maybe Maybe the, there's some of us who get in line at Starbucks or wherever and it's just a few people long and we're just totally just torqued off and, 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 and there's somebody at work that's on our nerve and, and we're just ready to explode at home. We know that there's an anger issue and that there's just this bubbling, boiling stuff inside of us. I'm praying, Lord, for that person today. I'm praying, Lord, that you would help the uncontrolled anger. Bring that under the lordship and the loving care of Jesus. I'm not sure why that happened. Maybe there's some unresolved stuff there, but Lord, I'm praying for the training of the Spirit to help each one of us control our anger so that we don't damage others, we don't hurt relationships, fracture friendships, Lord, and that there could be peace in our hearts, peace in our relationships, peace in our homes, peace at work, peace in our church. I'm praying, Lord, for that right now, that grace. If that's you, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm praying for you. Maybe some were so uncontrollably angry at you that damaged you and hurt you and said things and marked you and scarred you. I'm praying, Lord, for those hurts to be healed. Maybe those of you never modeled healthy emotional, emotional control. You were never modeled this at home. I'm praying, Lord, that you would lead and guide us. You be our model, Jesus. I'm praying that none of us tries to do this in our own strength, but that we would all take a step back wherever we need help and work on in this sermon and that we would ask for your grace and your strength to be made perfect through us. Lord, I thank you so much for this church. I'm praying that we would be people who live a lifestyle of Jesus. Lord, let us reflect your love and grace and may kindness and mercy flow out of us. May we share, Lord, may we we see grace given through our words and may this be a, a, a place where life flows out, the life of Jesus. It's a lot to pray for, but I pray for it by your strength, by your grace and in your good name. And we all said, amen.